Andrea, so many of our conversations begin with an exploration of our past. We often ask our guests, we ask ourselves, we ask each other about when we first began to connect to an awareness of social justice and social injustice. Yeah. And it always sort of teaches us a new way of seeing ourselves. It sort of grounds us in what experience has given us a lens that makes social justice and social injustice really pertinent to our identity. Can you think about, if you look at your own personal life, right? Who in your past helped you establish an awareness of what happens in society in regards to justice and injustice? How'd you get that? Tessing, that's a great question. And I think that one person, if I had to pick one person, you're asking me for one, right? Not yeah. 25. Just give us one. Okay, that one would have to be my uncle, my Uncle Daryl. Uncle Daryl! And you've heard me talk about Uncle Daryl. You talk about for Uncle decades, Daryl right? all the time. Right, because, you know, he is a friend of my mind. Ooh. Right? Did I just throw some Tony in there you for threw you? some Tony. Tony's I did. here. I She's did. I did. So, you know, in, in the vein of Tony, what my uncle did for me, he gathered me. Mm. Right? And he made me who I am today. So if I think about the one person who opened my eyes and always required that I see more, be more, experience more, question more, ask more, change more, it would be Uncle Daryl. How about you? Who is that one person for you? You know, I love both my parents. Yeah. So I'm going to turn them into like a composite figure. Okay. And say, my mother, father. Like a morph yes, thing just of... Together. Mother, okay. father. Mother, yeah. father. Okay. Uh, they were so strategic in how they raised us, the five of us. I don't know if I often hear parents talk about a strategy for indoctrinating their children, the way my parents developed their strategy. They made a departure from how they were raised, which was a lot of children should be seen and not heard, and developed this hybrid of Pan-Africanism, Islamic principles, just amazingly pro-Black family life. Yeah. So your mother-father combination, mother-father combination, Uncle Darrell would dovetail directly on that, right? And so everything that he introduced me to and pulled the scales back on my eyes, even when I knew there weren't scales there, or I wasn't even aware that scales might have been there, he did that. He poured into me this idea of loving self and loving Blackness and really being unapologetic, even before it was a hashtag. Right. So now when we are hashtagging unapologetically, Uncle Daryl, that's always been his premise. Right. And so this idea of this little girl who just wanted to hang out over the summer and her uncle is saying, no, we're going to march on Sixth Street. For those of you who are my listeners from South Florida, you know what I mean when I say Fort Lauderdale and the Sistrunk Festival. Uncle Daryl was that person signing us up for every march, every walk. And in the meantime, I'm going to need you to read this book by Stephen Biko. I'm going to also need you to read the autobiography of Malcolm X and have at least 14 questions formulated for me. And all of this is during the summer. And I just wanted to be me, just a girl who wanted to hang out with her uncle. Maybe go to the movies and see Herbie Goes in Monte Carlo. But instead, he was pouring into me who Malcolm Little was. And I think that... Because of him and his expectation of Black excellence, I became aware of what an injustice was very early on, right? And we would have conversations and we would see 
and just it's like everyone you know I don't know I maybe I take it for granted to think that everyone grew up like we did with our mother father and uncle and seeing an injustice and having spaces that they can talk about it and question it but maybe everybody didn't I don't know the work that we've been doing we talked to thousands of people what do you I mean what do you think I don't I definitely don't think everybody did I think there is a critique of that child rearing that says your children should be able to frolic Mm. and they should be able to ride their bikes and not have to think about those things and how sad that the age of innocence for you was so short I think that it's fair to say there is some sadness in that. I don't know that my mother, father, or Uncle Daryl felt as though we didn't deserve to frolic. I think that they tried to create an awareness of reality that allowed for some frolicking, but also allowed for some foundational awareness of some of the bitter pills we'd have to swallow. I look at my own children and I want them to have a carefree sense of living. I think I give them that somehow in the home we create together. But I also know they have to have some armor. And maybe that's what the Uncle Daryl was doing for you. And I think if we examine the times that we grew up and the locale and what was going on around us, you know, day to day we put things in context and we give it a historic lens, right? We ask people to start from a historic lens or start from a personal lens. I think if you look at what your mother, father and Uncle Daryl did for us, What they were doing was creating, now we call it place and space, we call it freedom to do all these things. They were creating the armor for us, Tasneem, but they were equipping us for a time such as this. Mm. If we think about what is going on today and as things have unfolded and you are a mother and I am a mother and I am a proud mom of an amazing 19-year-old black boy, 100% black young man, he's a young man, and everything that tried to instill in him and how he has to enter into spaces and enter into the world, I think that armor, you know, I don't know if it's a sadness that we miss certain parts of our childhood because that armor is needed right now a second generation beyond our mother, father, and uncle. So much so that even at the risk of me missing out on some frolicking, that helped create the armor that Ryan is able to carry on. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I think... You know, we talk a lot about things not being one way yeah. and believing that we can see sort of a spectrum of possibilities. Mm-hmm. There has to be room for Ryan to be on his skateboard and to be, you know, flying down the greenway without a care in the world. Right. There also has to be room for Ryan to put his hands on the steering wheel the right way when he's pulled over. Correct. There has to be room for my girls to just have on music sit on the patio and be loud and laughing with what we call black girl joy. There also has to be an awareness of what to do when somebody says to them, I don't think you live here. Real talk. That is real. That's truth be told. That's truth be told. And so I think the sadness sits beside what I feel is duty. We have to send our children into the world with a certain awareness. I think that's protection that they may feel a little bit of resentment. I get that. I mean, you know, sometimes they even, my children complain about the names I've given them. Like, why couldn't you just name us Tiffany? You know, just like, what? So, you know, on one hand, we want to give them something to go into the world with. And on the other hand, they're saying, I just want to blend. I don't want to have to think about all this. I don't want the armor. I'd rather just have on some... I don't know, the latest Nikes and a t-shirt. And we're like, that's nice. Put the armor on over. Right. 
you know. And so I know that I am a product of that kind of child rearing, that I have to give you both. I have to give you a lot. Yeah. I have to give you more than just childhood innocence. I have to give you preparation and protection. Because we are required. The work that we do professionally, the governing that we do in our homes as mothers, and the interactions that we have in our sisterhood and all of our relationships that we are part of, we must guide everybody who comes behind us, whether that's our children, whether that's those people who we mentor, whether that's even our parents. It is our responsibility. It's our duty. And that's one of the things that I know Uncle Daryl has always, my entire family, you know, you have a responsibility and a duty to your family. And that duty includes protecting them. And so before we can have some black boy joy in our home, we have to have some black boy armor on. That's the reality of it. It's the reality. And so our work has name. We ask people, you started off our conversation today with, let's get personal. When did you first notice an injustice and who was that person that gave you that re- reckoning? When did you first notice? Give me like a real concrete example of something that happened to you that you're like, oh my gosh, wait a minute. It's that thing. Yeah. And I'm sure it's a great story with one of those mother fathers. <laughs> with the mother father. I think I, I need you to understand the kind of house I grew up in. Okay. Okay. You remember back in the day with In Living Color? Yeah. But let's tell the audience, you know, like many people may not know where you grew up oh, in. Let's true. talk about that. Yes. Let's put some geography to this okay. story. Okay. Okay. Uh, I am a product of the Great Migration. Of the 1930s and 40s, definitely African-Americans traveling up north seeking economic prosperity, but also safety. So roots in, we always say, roots in West Africa, roots in the south of the United States, making their way to central New York, which is where I grew up. And big families, you know, collard greens on Sunday kind of families. My parents made a departure and became Muslim at the time of Malcolm X. And so during that time, there was a North American Islamic party. They moved to D.C., uh, joined in some ways like in a community slash commune. I have to ask, did your parents know Brother Malcolm? They did not know Brother Malcolm. They were actually high school sweethearts. My father's last name is Grace. My mother was Guy. They were in homeroom together. They were together since they were 16. Quite precious. But at that time, the idea was you're going to build a strong black nation. So people were having big families. So my parents stopped at five, but it was nothing for you to have 10, 12, 13 children. And so, again, it was strategy. So how will you raise these children? So if you remember in Living Color, back in the day... Takia Crystal Kema. Oh, let's give a shout out that she is a graduate or uh, attended the, oh, the illustrious Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University. There we go. There we go. Can you do the Rattlers song? Um, not today. <laughs> but any so, Rattlers listening, we shall strike, oh, strike, and always strike. Even, even struck. You don't get to say okay. that. <laughs> As you can tell, I did not go to FAMU. I went to you, Syracuse. Ooh. But, yeah, I have no sounds to make about that. I know. Go orange. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> but, um, but in the house I grew up in, it was kind of like the black world that her character talked about and in Living Color. Like, it's time for black world. Yeah. And black world, all the black people have the money. And, and, and your mother doesn't have to... Um, and stay up in the theater and clean up late at night while you have to sit and wait and be quiet and, and then you're sleepy. And then, and then when you go to school, um, it's, it's no rats in the corner and no mice either. And the books are brand new and they have pictures of black people. And, oh, oh, and all your dolls are black and 
and not no black bob either, but a real black doll with, with black people hair and a black nose. And her name is, um, and her name is Luana. I don't know, mythical. Like my mother put everything on Africa. Everything. Uh, oh, so Tad's name. You know, as five of us were stair steps, you have to take care of your brothers and sisters because that's what we do in Africa. <laughs> and we were like, so my parents had a, a, a Pan-African school, and instead of boys and girls on the bathrooms, it said brothers and sisters. Wow. No joke. Halloween? <laughs> you didn't dress up like a ghoul? Oh, no. You were an African princess or Harriet Tubman or Christmas addicts. Yeah, that was Halloween. So... um that's, I'm trying not that, to laugh. I'm sorry. And I know it's So you amazing. never got a chance to be like Michael Jackson from Beat It? No. Thriller? Mm-mm. I remember one time my mother dressed me as an African princess with this really tall gay lay head wrap. And you thought you up. were? No, I wanted to be a ghost. Just a plain old ghost. I did. I just wanted to blend. And so that's the paradox, right? Like they're throwing all this intention into everything. And we're like, but we're in America though. <laughs> And so straddling that African-American. And so that meant conversations in our house were about race. Right. You know, that was not a foreign topic to us. So for me, when I think about my awareness of social injustice, it was part of my parents creating this dichotomy. There is a black world and there is a white world. Now, that's not to say there's not a Latino world and an Arab world. I mean, there was all that. We were Muslims, so we saw a lot of diversity. But the two that you needed to be aware of were black and white. And so I remember very distinctly, I was going to college, studying journalism, about to get my first job at a newspaper. And my father sat me down, like, Tasneem, I need to talk to you. I'm thinking, okay. And he goes, you're about to enter into white world. And I thought, oh. And he explained how in white world, you would not be assumed to be brilliant. You would not be assumed to be honest. You would not be assumed to be beautiful. I need you, Tasneem, to be aware that people may assume you to be dishonest, a thief, not, you know, just all kinds of sort of pros and cons on either side of the fence. So I listened. And again, it wasn't outrageous to me. We had grown up hearing these kinds of things already in the midst of lots of joy and fun. But do you think it was real? Like there was a possibility that this could happen because the things that our parents teach us and lecture to us about, that's one thing. The idea of taking this on, like this is a possibility that this might happen to me. I don't think I believed it wholeheartedly. I think I was still caught up in feeling very special. So they convinced us that we were the great kids and we were special. Mm. We were talented ten. Not so much that, just just sort of naturally smart and awesome. Yeah. Not necessarily in a comparative kind of way, but well, I kept thinking, once they get to know me, see, once they get to know me, then it'll be different. Right. And so my father was saying, they don't need to get to know you. It is by appearance alone or even the sound of your voice that someone's going to immediately come up with lots of stereotypes and they will treat you according to those stereotypes. I probably still thought to myself, but they just don't know me yet. Mm. And so, you know, I tucked it somewhere. So I start working at the newspaper. I'm a journalist. I'm young. I might be 18. Um, I have reporter's notebooks. I'm the youngest person there. I go into the coat closet of the newsroom where I've hung my jacket. I go to retrieve my reporter's notebook. And another reporter who was a grown man 
You know, I was a young woman. I was a freshman. Still so precious and tender. Just just so innocent. And he says, you know, what are you doing in here? I said, oh, I'm just getting my reporter's notebook, you know. And he goes, well, I hope nothing's missing. Hmm. And I like, I paused. What could he be talking about? Then, you know, like, boom, clarion call. Bell goes off. I'm like, oh, he's suggesting that I might be stealing something. And I remember in that moment, my first thought was not outrage nor insult. My first thought was, this is exactly what my father prepared me for. Number one thought. I will have to say it soothed me because then I understood my environment. Right. And that's what the armor does. That's what the armor does. You know, it says, oh, you know, and some people might say that's a chip on your shoulder or that's you assuming lots of things. Mm, maybe. But when that when that awareness equals an actual experience, you say, mm, there need not be surprise here. Right. I just need to know how to walk in this space. And so when later, you know, I then told my mentor and then we later talked to an editor, I actually shared with them like, hey, we don't need to panic. My father prepared me. And there was a lot of shock around that. Like, Wow. Like, not only was this part of how you prepared for this job, which was a career, this was a big deal to have a young African-American college freshman actually reporting for a newspaper. But it was also that that meant that that newspaper was not a safe place. I think it's amazing how people are now, today, thinking that having these conversations in our household is something new. And that... You know, like, oh, I have to have the race talk with my kid or I have to now prepare him for that mean, dark world. And for some people, it is brand new. It is. And so I don't want to minimize that. I'm not that. But there is a whole generation and multiple generations of us and coast to coast who for some of us, for many of us, right? Baldwin says some one of us should have seen some one of us should have said something. So for so many of us, this isn't anything new. You are raised with the awareness. It's in the breast milk. Yeah. You have to prep them. You do. do. What about for you, though? Is there a moment where you can look back and sort of think, ah, this is when I knew it wasn't just Uncle Daryl telling me stories? I, I, you know, one that comes to mind, uh, there are several, but the one that comes to mind is I was a high school student and, you know, again, I grew up in South Florida, Fort Lauderdale, and an amazing family, great support, some strong women some amazing men and they were strong too but you know this dominance you know there were more women in my family Um, my grandmother had six children and my uncle is the only son and I wanted brothers I wanted a lot of brothers and some things I have an amazing younger sister but I I saw images of what black excellence was and so I was telling you earlier in another conversation that every time I would see an injustice, or we all would witness, we were bearing witness to an injustice. So much effort from my uncle was poured into seeing the excellence of who we were and not allowing that to be the last residual in imagery that we saw of ourselves. Because what we saw of ourselves was playing out all over the country. You know, um, we were seeing it unfold regardless, whatever was going on at that time. So my story, I was in high school, um pretty active in high school. You know, most people don't realize that I have this secret desire to do theater. I think they can tell from the way you said theater. Oh, like I'm a secret thespian. 
<laughs> and most people would never know that I studied Shakespearean theater. And so um, now they do. Now they do. Now, now we do. all do. <laughs> so you know, I'll save that for another episode, right? Certainly. I will come fully costume in my Lady Macbeth, I'll tell you. But for this story, high school and the idea of being around black women who knew what excellence was, who weren't afraid to work. You know, my grandmother's grandmother, yes, my grandmother's grandmother, um, name is Tessie Slater, played a huge role in my life. And if you think about how old she was, we called her mother. Right? And so mother helped make me the political guru that I am, and that she also made me see what black women could be and who black women were and the power of entrepreneurship or the power of owning a boarding house or power of saying this is what a black woman does when she excels and she is allowed to take flight and she has those women around her lifting her up. So as this young wannabe flying black woman, you know, a little bit more radical now than I was, I don't know, maybe equally radical then as I am now. Growing up in this high school in Fort Lauderdale, Oakland Park, the high school was in Oakland Park. And I had a teacher who, this is probably going to shock some of you, I, I kind of like to talk and engage and have conversations. And sometimes I would be talking, maybe, you know, when he or she or they were trying to give a lesson. Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know. Maybe unfiltered at times. Um, Just a little. But definitely a scholar. Always kept grades 4.0. Always, right? But I had a lot of social commentary then. Mm. Um, probably more than I have now. And so my teacher said, I'm not going to tell you again. Be quiet. Shut up. And so I kind of paused. And he said, shut up. And I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is my senior year in high school. Um, I said, wait, 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 you can't tell me to shut up. And he took this authoritative, you know, he's this white male and he's standing up over me and I'm one of the few black people in this classroom. And he stands up and he's like, I told you to shut up and you'll know your place and you will sh be quiet. Shut up. I make the rules here. I am the authority. And I was like, not not in my world. You aren't in this space. And he's like, this is my classroom. and You shut up. And I was like, you know what? You can't tell me to shut up. Now, I'm a senior in high school. You can't tell me to shut up. You can ask me to be quiet. You can even demand that I stop talking. But you will not tell me to shut up because you will not silence me. And then it dawned on me all the lessons that Uncle Darrow said of how many times you will become a threat to so many different people. Um, and I've carried that story of someone trying to tell me I'm the authority and let me put you in your place. Yeah, that's and what got me. You will know your place. You will know your place. What place is that, sir? Um, I, I'm sure I'm sure he thought it was going to be in this lowly, yes, sir, kind of place. But obviously he didn't know what, what stock I came from. So we wanted this episode for people to get to know us. And now they know us. We also want to ask them some things. We want them to think about their own lives, yeah. right? And to look back and think, especially if they are contemplating noticing social justice more today than perhaps they ever have, or perhaps they've always noticed. But what was that moment? Like, take a few minutes and actually go back in your own timeline and ask yourself, when did this get real for you? When yeah. did all those lessons start to make sense? When did you realize that sometimes we have to suit up and put the armor on? Yeah. 
And for those who are listening and asking themselves that question, I would love to know what happened after you noticed. That's another day, another podcast. Another one. But you've heard our truth. You've heard how we see things differently and some things we see the same right from our own childhood. We'd like to hear about your truth and your memories. Thank you for being with us in this first episode of Truth Be Told. Thanks to the Nashville Public Library Foundation and also to the Nissan Foundation for their ongoing support of our work with civil rights and civil society. We have to thank our great team at Nashville Public Library, the staff in the Civil Rights Center and the Special Collections Center, and we thank anyone else who's poured energy into making sure that the truth always be told.